You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And we also offer online shopping and curbside pickup through our website, skylightbooks.com. And you can find a schedule of upcoming events on there as well. Um, It's my real pleasure today to welcome Bud Smith onto the podcast today to talk about his novel, Teenager, which is out now from Vintage. Bud Smith works heavy construction in New Jersey. Uh, His story, Violets, which I love, appeared in the Paris Review. How are you doing today, Bud? I'm doing real good. Thanks for having me on the show. Really, really our pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. Um, And you're going to read something from the book? Yeah, I'll read something from the book. Sure. Awesome. Okay, so this is from Teenager. This is chapter five. So we're a little bit into the book. Just uh, this is page 29. Um, It opens up with a escape from a juvenile detention center, a double homicide, and now Cody and Teal. They are on the run a bit. They are driving into the New Jersey Pine Barrens, home of the New Jersey Devil. Over there, I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. It's a great book about the Pine Barrens by John McPhee. It's wonderful. A lot of people like his other books, like Oranges and um, so on. I love the Pine Barrens most. I'd read that. Is that what so the, hockey, the hockey team is named after too, then? The, yeah, the, oh, it is. That's cool. Is. Yeah, the Jersey Devils, yeah. So chapter five of Teenager, they were pulled farther in the starlit trails, dragging deeper from civilization. Ah, sorry, I messed it up already. Let me start it over. This is chapter five from Teenager. They were pulled farther in the starlit trails, dragged deeper away from civilization, navigating slowly around puddles and fallen trees, feeling tinier like a gulp of blood, fruiting freely, freely down a vein, going, man, I don't know what my problem is today. So Michael Jeffrey, let me start one more time. <laughs> yeah, as many times as you need, bud. No, I usually usually don't need anything. So chapter five from Teenager. They were pulled farther into starlit trails, dragged deeper away from civilization, navigating slowly around puddles and fallen trees, feeling tinier, like a gulp of blood, floating freely down a vein, going on forever, reducing still to the size of an atom, shrinking to a particle, subatomic, invisible to the naked eye. They prayed to be overlooked in the grand scheme. The moon was fat and heavy and had no idea what Cody and Teal had done, what they'd seen. It was just the moon. It shone on their path just as clear as ever. Good thing, too. The headlights were so dim. Cody pulled the car into a meadow. They'd rough it that first night in the car. He didn't want to bother with setting up a tent. All the things that would come with it. He knew they'd fight while setting up a tent. All the poles, all the stakes. They couldn't fight right now. He lit a campfire, dragged logs over. They warmed themselves before the low blaze. He relaxed and took in deep breaths of wood smoke and the pleasant reek of pine. He couldn't contain his optimism. Now this is just perfect, Teal. Perfect. I'd love to live in the wilderness again. Again? As far as Teal knew, he'd come from a trailer park on the side of a major highway. There were scraggly woods behind the park, but Teal couldn't imagine anyone ever calling them wilderness. Yeah, he said, live in the wilderness again. And do what? Be wild. 
He sat cross-legged on the ground, staring into the fire. He tossed a small stick in the direction, in her direction and landed on her blanket. She didn't notice or pretended not to notice. It was getting complicated. Finally, she said, I don't like this. I'd rather be somewhere luxurious. He said, we're still so close to the big cities. Look how small the sky is. Pretty soon it'll be so big, it'll just rip us up into it. I paid attention in school, she said. The sky is this big anywhere. You sure? I know for a fact. You'll see. You'll see. It'll be very romantic. An owl began to hoot. Her parakeet winter flinched in his cage. The gunshots had made the parakeet loopy. Teal asked for specifics. Where were they headed? What would they do? Cody thought it was great that she was thinking of the future because then that meant there was a shot at getting loose from their past. For starters, he said, I want to be near you for every heartbeat I got left. One heartbeat, a billion heartbeats, whatever it is. Me too, but all you said was big sky and the word west. No need to worry. He began to, teal, to tell Teal what they would do. It was simple. He wanted to kick open the door to their dreams, get them into the wide open spaces such they had never seen away from New Jersey, out into the places where the air was medicine and the pale trembling stars were pills of happiness, where enormous trout were carried down from melted snow-capped rivers, frigid mountain peaks looming mauve and miraculous, where train whistles screeched at midnight and the wolves of midnight howled along, where Cody and Teal would wake at dawn and break the wild horses of dawn, where blizzards were biblical and they would wrap themselves in bearskin to survive, after the thaw, they'd have great stories like all survivalists had, where the summers were crippling, but you knew for sure if you were living or dead. It'd been impossible to tell if you were alive in those suburbs. But what exactly are you getting at, Cody? He said, we're going to be cowboys. He waited for her reply. None came. Cody told Teal the best news of all. He decided it was final. He slapped his knee. We're officially headed to Montana. He'd put in the application weeks ago. He already had the job. He was sure of it. He'd give himself a new name there at the ranch, and so would she. They'd work at this ranch. Hard work, yes, but meals provided, running water, all the sunshine a person could stand. She said, sounds like you got it all figured out. He said, we're all, well, we're on our way to Montana, the big leagues, but first let's peruse this country. We'll never get another chance. She let that settle in. The days and nights between here and the job are ours. Jewels to enjoy, yes. That's what we'll do. We'll taste the Rockies. We'll swim with crocodiles. We'll ring the Liberty Bell, all that. Alligators, she said. What now? There's no crocodiles in this country, right? He ran his fingers through her stupendous hair. She had more hair on her head than anybody else he knew. She had enough hair for two or three other people. Two began to blubber with grief, and he took it in stride that the shock had worn off. He took her in his arms. Soon she was crying on his lap. He soothed her, pet her head, and couldn't help but think of better days when they'd been, er they'd been erotic, and she had done things on his lap other than cry. Better days. To break the grim mood, he said, I wish my guts glowed in the dark, so if you look down my mouth, you could see my heart, even if the night was starless. I want to go home. Home? Yeah. Everywhere in America is your home. Please, she said. Before long, she was asleep. Cody moved her gingerly into the Lincoln. He took the photos of her mother Mimi out of her purse. He took the photographs of Arturo out of her purse. He placed her mother and father into the fire. Thanks, bud. That was great. That was Bud Smith reading from his novel, Teenager. 
And it was, it was great. I, you know, just finished this book a couple days ago and then I reread Violets as it was like my introduction to you. And it was, it was really funny because I had, I could locate and remember the exact moment I became a fan. Like I remember it was summer 2020 lockdown in its heat. And I'm like at my parents' house in Rhode Island, just like, you know, bored reading the Paris Review. And there's this sentence very early on in that story. And it's, uh, do you know about being on the lamb? It's not too hard. You pay in cash, sell your wedding rings, drive the speed limit. Don't go anywhere. People rumble. Listen to Benjamin Franklin early to bed, early to rise. And I was like that. Do you know about being on the lamb? I was like, I love this casual direct address of the reader. Um, and that features in tyrant as well. Um, and I wonder if that had always been, you know, something in your toolbox as a writer or, um, how you came to that. Cause you have these like big poetic flourishes and this like naturalness between the characters, but I love, um, you know, we can hear you speaking to us, the reader, um, like kind of breaking the fourth wall. And I wonder how, how that uh, ended up in your work. Yeah. I mean, that's always, I, I didn't know you weren't supposed to do, <laughs> I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that stuff until um, I started. Um, I never, I didn't go to school for college. I'm not proud of it or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, I just worked construction and, and I would read and I would, uh, you know, watch as many good films as I could. Mm. And as I got older, um, I started getting more involved with going and seeing readings and stuff in the city. And even then I still didn't know you weren't, you know, there wasn't a bunch of stuff you were, you weren't allowed to do or you weren't supposed to do in, in writing, let's say, um, until I even, I had small press for a while. I published a bunch of people. I got, were involved in editing and stuff like that. And then I'd met enough people who had complained about their MFA programs mm -hmm. and like the, you know, the, the, I, the university of Iowa story. <laughs> yeah. 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 All that stuff <laughs> where, where they were like, just so mad at their MFA programs and their people they went to school with. And some people started saying to me, why don't you teach a workshop? So I was like, all right. I didn't know how that was. So I, I wrote to uh, my friend, Ben Laurie, uh, who lives there in Los Angeles, one of my favorite writers, genius, that guy. And I said, how do you, how do you teach a workshop? What is it? What is it? I, I've never been to one. So he kind of explained it to me, like how it works with a round table and giving critiques and stuff. And then I started for the first time in my life, I started being around um, writing critiques. Mm. And this was just a few years ago. This was like, maybe like two years before the pandemic. So 2018, I think, is when I started doing this. And I started hearing students, like, critique each other on, like, all the other's laundry list of stuff you weren't supposed to do. And I was like, oh, oh, wow. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, know, you, I didn't know you weren't allowed to address the reader and stuff like that. Or, or you had to be, like, really careful with it. And, um, yeah, so I was like, um, I was like, oh, my God. Okay. And um, certainly people learned a lot of other things, but that was my first exposure really to seeing like, you know, the list of things that have been done terrible. I don't know. Yeah. Bad, I, bad by other people for too long. And now you're not supposed to do it anymore. And I was just like, I don't really care. About yeah. That stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like, if there's a rule and if it, you know, uh, feels like a stricture, then there's almost always going to be value and, and kind of like, you know, giving it a middle finger. Right. You know, like, and, and I think the other thing about workshops is the goal is not to like, you know, um, prove that your story works around a round table with other writers, you know, like I, I like to imagine that writing can reach people who aren't sitting at those tables. 
Uh, so yeah. I, I love the direct address. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, I think you use it really well. And I'm glad that, you know, people telling you it was a rule didn't stop you from using it. No, I don't think anyone should should do that. If you hear something, something you shouldn't do, and it's something you feel naturally drawn to do, just keep doing it. You'll get eventually you'll get better at it uh, to the point where, you know, it's like what Bob Dylan said. I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to that genius, but he, he's just like, you know, it was too late. They couldn't get rid of me. I was already in the door. Yes. You know, it's like, I feel like the things you do naturally as an artist, you're probably were kind of doing them when you were a kid already just at like an, un, an undeveloped level. And then the longer you had the experience with it, you just, not that you got, and honestly, not even that you got particularly better at it. It's just like you had, you've had the experience and uh, it just becomes part of your DNA, something you sit down and do and just it's yourself. For sure. I, you know, I, I like that you brought up like the childhood element too, because Violet's is a story about, you know, being on the lamb and in committing insurance fraud and teenager is very much a, a novel about being on the lamb out in the world. Um, you know, I'm sure you're tired of people telling you it reminded them of the movie Badlands, but it did, which is a great one. Um, and I kind of wondered what the attraction of the life on the lamb was for you and, and why you feel pulled to it as a subject. Well, I'm not tired of talking about that at all. I, I kind of think that um, whenever somebody compares something you've made to something else they love, I think that's that's beautiful. Um, and uh, I remember when I first saw Badlands, I was like 15 or so, a very formative movie to me when I was a kid. I grew up down the street from this video store. And I just remember walking in the video store and it was VHS and rent to get one, th one free and just diving really deep into, you know, once you've already seen all the, all the main stuff that's on the shelves that they have, you start digging in the boxes of yeah. just the, uh, the plastic folded up cardboard boxes into like the new Hollywood section or something. I think that's where I found that movie. And it was just like, um, it was just amazing. Like what, like what, what a person can get away with as an artist and like, you know, because they do it boldly. So that's just a Badlands is a really bold movie, you know? And I was really interested in, in that story, um, Starkweather story, because it, it's become like so retold by so many different people in so many different angles that I, uh, yeah, I wanted to add my, throw my version of it into the hat of uh, the American misunderstood myth of these things we keep copycatting. Yeah. You know? So anyway, um, <clears throat> your question though was, being on the lamb, like why, why, why don't, so teenagers, a story about these two lovers on the lamb, young, young lovers. And uh, Violet's is a story about some slightly older lovers on the lamb. Most of my stories these days have been just obsessed probably for the last 10 years. I just write about people breaking away from mm -hmm. their lives and the things that are containing them in a little box and getting some personal freedom. And so these two stories just happen to be about criminals, which I don't write a whole lot of stories about criminals, but these two are. And, um, and yeah, I mean, after you commit a crime, what, what do you do? You know, right. you go on the run. So it's kind of like, <laughs> unless the crime hasn't been discovered yet, I guess, but you know, you go on the run and it's cops and robbers and stuff like that. Yeah. But, it's fun. Um, it's fun because it's like um, this isn't, uh, you know, washing the dishes and getting lost in your head kind of novel. It's like like 
things are happening. There are so many events in this book uh, and we're on the move and, you know, there's, there's dark stuff in here. There's murder, there, there's kind of desperation, but Cody and Teal are so much fun to be around and they kind of, even though they're in a stressful situation, they, they seem to be enjoying themselves. And you have such um, an exuberant language in this book um, that it's a fun book. And I, want, I wonder if you have fun while you're writing because there, there's certainly excitement in there, but I, you know, I know that writing is often not fun. So, so I'm curious uh, if it's sometimes fun, if it's always fun. If you're, I, I picture you standing up when you're writing. I don't know, I don't know if that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm sitting down, but, uh, <laughs> but like on the, sometimes in, in very short moments of sitting, uh, was, a lot of this was written on my cell phone, texted to myself little, you know, the first drafts of it. And then, and then of course, obviously like anybody else, you know, you sit down and retype it all or work on it on the laptop and edit it that way. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the book, the book reads like it's fun because, I think as it is subject matter, it's, yeah, it's dark, but like my, my whole point was of writing it was seeing, seeing the world. Even after this terrible thing happens, you're just at, you're at this age where like you get your first freedoms mm. and you finally, and you know, unfortunately the parents had to get murdered, but <laughs> <laughs> you get away from your, you get away from your parents and you finally can be yourself for the first time. And so that's, that's where that exuberance comes from. That's where that joy comes from. It's like, you know, I mean, everybody I know is aware of the fact that they're going to die. I've never met anyone who's like, no, actually I'm immortal. I'm immortal. <laughs> I have a friend who was telling me recently that he was at a party and was talking to someone who was convinced that they're young enough now. I think they're like 21 or 22 that science is going to advance enough that it'll be able to keep up with his aging process and be yeah. able to correct it and he'll live to be 500 or something. He'll be, he'll live to be like one of these characters from Genesis or something. Yeah. Yeah. Genesis. Methuselah got, who you reference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, everybody I've ever met, they knows they're going to die and they know they have a limited time here on earth, but yet somehow they still find, they still find the joy in it. So that's the kind that's the kind of book this is. I mean, yeah, believe me, I'm sure I'll write my uh, miserable ones. Oh, Not, hell yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> um, I was thinking of, you know, reading this, I'm always looking for like, you know, uh, the cousins of the book, you know, in terms of style. And I was thinking of Cormac McCarthy, just because we're in deserts and there's horses and uh, the exuberance remind me of like Scott McClanahan and like the, the poetic stuff, a little bit of like Sam Pink, you know, like the, the realism, but with flourishes. And then that Joy Williams novel, Breaking and Entering, um, which is set in the Florida Keys and it's a couple breaking into houses. Uh, but I wondered who you think of like um, who you're reading when you were first writing this book. And then like, if there are any, any books you think of as like this book's grandparents, you know, like uh, yeah, the, the, the important ones that this one was kind of feeding from maybe. Yeah, totally. And thanks for that list of comparisons. All those writers you mentioned are my heroes. You know, Scott awesome. McMahon, Sam Pink's writing. It's it just, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, Cormac McCarthy, of course, like, um, I think like his novel, like Sutri and, uh, mm -hmm. Child of God, there, there's an amazing, amazing novels and, uh, can definitely, um, do worse than being compared to those, those authors. So thanks. Um, I'm always going to, you know, I'm going to sit down and someone's like, this book reminded me of that Ziggy comic strip, you know, 
this is like that Garfield. This is like Garfield. No, but uh, I, I, yeah, I love all those authors you mentioned. When I was um, when I was writing teenager, uh, started out as a poem. I had to write it for. I got to a poetry reading. One of these poetry readings in the city. One of the writers hadn't shown up, and the person putting on the event saw me and was like, "Hey, um, will you read for like ten minutes?" And I was like, "Oh my god, there was no cell phone reception in the place, so I wrote the poem on like a napkin." Oh my and God. That became uh, the outline for the book. But I mean, that didn't was, happen. Come on. No, it did. But like, <laughs> and that that poem wound up in um, one of my poetry collections called um, uh, Everything Neon. Cool. But, um, but it's like, it's not like the material is the most original thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, it's already based on just shoot your mom and dad. We've been, we've been doing that for a long time. <clears throat> but anyway, so like, Whoa, you know, I got the I got the first drafts of the the novel started it started becoming a long short story, it changed into like a novel. And eventually it became like I needed to read things to understand how to do things I didn't really know how to do. I I thought like um brutality, especially. I, I hadn't I didn't know a lot about how to write a really gruesomely bloody thing, you know. Yeah. So I wrote two. Gian and I asked him what he thought and he put me in touch with Blake Butler who gave me a list of like some disgusting <laughs> some disgusting novels he loves and I read I read some of them and um and yeah that was helpful I, I think I think I read I read well I read Child of God yeah uh, but I and I honestly I didn't really I didn't really think that book was very gruesome it has like necrophilia in it and it's like like a faulkner novel it's like you know um it's i guess it's gross if like you just look at it on like the surface level but it's really like um a funny novel it's like a it's that it's that way faulkner does humor kind of yeah it's just like bumbling around this guy's bumbling around in like caves and coming out and having sex with dead bodies but um but yeah so i read some gruesome books and I read uh, Dennis Cooper. Yeah. The Sluts, which is Love amazing. that book. Love that book. Yeah. Everybody, everybody should read The Sluts. It's amazing. Um, he's, his, his work is incredible. The, um, I'm always like reading his books, like at work or something. Someone's like, hey, what are you reading? I'm like, oh my God. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't ask me that. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. They'll like see me read. I was reading, one time I was reading Beloved by Toni Morrison at work. And the, the guys were like, "Was that a romance novel?" <laughs> Only if you. Uh, uh, I'm not even gonna make the joke. <laughs> not a yeah. romance, yeah. Not a romance novel. Yeah. But, but like I said, I was like, I was trying to see like what I was missing out on and um, the gaps in my reading. Like, and I wanted to start reading some of the best books supposedly that were ever written that weren't like you know, canonized. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wanted to read like. So I started reading like Ulysses and, mm-hmm. and I had 18 other books that I was reading while I read Ulysses. Like I'd read one chapter Ulysses and I'd read a book and I'd read chapter two, read a book. Yeah. That's a good so, way to go through that. Yeah. And it was great. I learned, I learned so much and like, I just thought it was cool, man. I just had a great time. But the, the other books were like, you know, like Hamlet, Macbeth, mm-hmm. uh, I read a bunch of uh, like Waiting for Godot and Malloy and, I th- and some other um yeah, a yeah. lot of read the modernist, a lot of the modernist stuff like Virginia Woolf, yeah. Lighthouse, and 
Mrs. Dalloway. So I was reading a bit of everything, just trying to see where so the, possi- the possibilities that I think that's what those, those, the modernists show you really. And that's, that's where I think a lot of the possibilities of, of teenager kind of come from. It's like, you're kind of reading and it kind of floats away here and there. Yeah. It's just finding, you know, finding the, the emotion, the emotion of the scene can kind of control the writing. The Speak- writing can kind of float off with it. Speaking of uh, brutal books, I wondered if you read any uh, Eugene Martin, just because he was a tyrant guy and he's like one of the most like controlled and brutal writers. He's like not really that well known, but he had that book Firework on Tyrant and then another one called, uh, I think it was called Trash. That was also a necrophilia uh, book, but he he's like so intense, um, but I like him a lot. I don't, I don't want to talk all day about him if, if he's not your guy, though. Oh, he's not my guy. He's not my guy yet. I, yeah. I, own, I own all those books and I'm, you know, like I have this like never ending list of like things yeah. I study and learn from, and I'm just excited. And he's one of those writers who have people revere. So I bought them, you know, I have them. Yeah. I'm just hoping I live, I keep living. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I get to like experience these things and it's the same way with filmmakers and stuff and even bands, like for sure. I've done so many years where like, even with bands where I'm kind of like, oh man, I love the Rolling Stones. Like how basic is it to love the Rolling Stones? But it's like, I find the longer I live, you know, I can appreciate different specific albums they did for, and deep dive on them and, and get new things from them and like really finally understand them. Like, I don't know. It's the same way with authors. Like yeah, the thing I knew about, about that man was um, when I was working with, with Gian on Teenager in like the very, very early stages, we didn't really get you know we didn't get too deep into much of anything i would just kind of turn it in and the book was under the contract and it was like you know it needed time i needed time just to keep writing it and working on it he had read like my previous two books and i think really wanted to work together on the next one but the books he had read were autobiographical he had read my memoir work which is out of print i hope it comes back in print one of these days and he'd read um, my novel F250. Mm-hmm. So I would just write about pretty much my life. And and he really wanted to work on another book. And then I gave him this thing. And it was like complete, this fictional fantasy thing. And he was into it, but it, you know, it needed I needed to I needed to finish it because I'd only given him like a little sample of the beginning of it. And anyway, so um, the thing that Gian would talk about about with Eugene Martin was how he would retype his novels i think he told me he read that eugene had retyped firework at least seven times yeah i believe it like just print it all out i don't know how he did it but sit there and retype it and um i was just like damn i guess that's how you do it huh yeah i had a teacher justin torres who's who's great he wrote that book we the animals who gave the same advice he was like this is how people wrote novels before word processing so there's something to it so just do it (laughs) Yeah, um, so I, I started yeah, doing yeah. that. I, yeah, and I started doing that with all my work, and I just saw. Them. I, I I was happy with my work before, and then I saw when I started doing that. I unfortunately it becomes a lot better, <laughs> remarkably better when you retype it a couple times. And, truly, truly, because nothing yeah. nothing's gonna you know slide by your eyes. Can't just gloss over something that's actually you know not working. You know, and that's you bad news. It, you feel it when you, when you type it out again. You're like, that is bad. That's gotta go. <laughs> yeah it's bad news for the for the writer too because it's like oh no now yeah. i now i now i really see what i have to do to to get my work up to the level where i'm happy with it now and it's 
you take hey, listen, on a, it's it's a great problem to have because I love to do it. But yeah, yeah, you take on a lot more dread though. <laughs> I you know, I I found that that no, it's actually less dread because it's like I dread a, I, a lot of my early books. You know, it's like I thought I was done with it, and then they're small press books, so the prob, the publisher takes them on, and and you're like really excited that someone's gonna, you know developmental edited copy edited all that stuff and then they're just like no it's good mm. and then, which is hey listen whatever but then the problem is that i'm like the, it comes out and i'm just like fuck man i know i know it needed to be copy edited. Yeah. I, know it to, I know it needed like three more rounds of edits and like it just never happened but um anyway so maybe some of that stuff's changed for me a little now that i'm retyping everything unfortunately all the extra work, the work that I enjoy, it kind of takes care of a lot of that. But then when you hand it into the publisher now, like this book actually got, a, you know, got rounds of edits, which I'd never really experienced before. How was that, that, that process? It was, it was amazing. It was, uh, um, I can stop now. I'm happy. I'm like, just so thrilled that I got to do it. Cool. I always wanted to like take a deep, deep dive, uh, on a project I worked on for a long time with someone. And, um, yeah, I got teamed up with amazing editor there at uh, Vintage. His name's Todd Portnovitz, and uh, it was amazing. And kind of found like the opposite. I thought what happened happened. I was like, ah, oh, no, I'm gonna have to like tone this down, and you know, censor not you know censor yeah, censor, yeah. but soften it. And I found it was my my thing was the opposite. It was kind of like you know. Anyway, so poked at it and I got to go a little farther and and deeper with things that I thought were kind of like messed up or whatever. The, um, the last reading note that I, I had coming, going through this book was, I wondered if, uh, I, I got some Unabomber vibes from it, you know, just from the living out in the wild, trying to like detach. Um, and there's an interesting thing you do here where it's like when the first, I don't know, hundred pages or so, a couple of times I asked myself like, is this novel set in like the current moment or where is it? Um, because it's like, and then like a cell phone appears and then later on there's like some cultural references that kind of like place us in time. But it struck me that like Cody and Teal, like one of the things they're trying to escape is like a very um, technology mediated life. Um, and I wondered how much of that you were thinking about like uh, um, trying to escape from devices as part of like what's what's motivating them or 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 something that you feel that you wanted to put down in a novel yeah I, I had a lot of questions about this probably in not in the phase the phase that the book was published in early early on some editors were kind of like asking me questions about it before it got to vintage, before it got to GM with Tyrant, they were like, what, when is this book set? Um, you need to like define, you need to define it because it seems like this time is like a slippery thing. And like, it's, it's all the times, like why, why is this girl love Elvis? And um, where's the cell phones and, and all this stuff. But um, I wasn't really so much interested in, in too much of that, but uh, I will say this, um, I remember this, this is the early two thousands. And I remember this time period um, because I was, I was this age. I was 18, I was 18 in 2000. I'd graduated. I was graduating high school 
so I thought of this as like 2002 maybe. And it's like some of the kids then, if like you were a kid and you were like, you weren't really fitting in with your peer group, like what music do you like? And what's your like cultural references? And it's like weird shit that you picked up from your parents or like a cousin or an older brother or someone who was also just not really connected to what was going on right now. You're like not part of society, really. You're in like, Mm. especially these like in suburbia, there would still be these people who would just like, I would know them who like they're into just big band music or something and (laughs) they don't play, they don't play the trumpet or anything. They just go home and like their dad blasts, you know, Glenn Krupa or something all through the house um, every night. And so you'd like get in someone's car and they'd be like, oh, let's check this out. And it'd be like this weird, this weird music where you're like, why are you listening to this? Like, this is insane. Like, you know, don't you like Pearl Jam or something? <laughs> so I, I knew these kids and um, I think they're, they'll, they'll kind of always exist. And they, those are the kind of kids that this book's about. It's Cody is just, he doesn't have any friends. He loves to read Don Quixote and he's, he's a weird little kid and he, he doesn't like music. He, he can't really wrap his head around it. And he's got this girlfriend who loves Elvis because his mom has a, had this big crush on Elvis and kind of never really. Um, and Tila Kouris holds this delusion that maybe Elvis Presley could be her real father because her, her own father is abusive. And um, yeah, they're just from this different demented part of the world, suburbia. And it's not that odd to find people who are just not into what's on the radio or what's on TV right now. They have no, they have no connection to it. And so yeah, that's what yeah. we're dealing with. So I think all of a sudden when a burner phone shows up towards the middle of the book and I think the reference, the cultural reference is like Conan O'Brien, the, uh, the, what's his name? The dog, the yeah. puppet dog. Yeah. Triumph the infant triumph. That's the it. Triumph yeah. dog. It's like all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, we're not in 1970 or something. But like, um, but yeah, that's that's what I always thought when I was writing this book. Yeah, I don't want to like beat people over the head with here's where we are. Here's the year. Here's the temperature. Here's the yeah. direction of the wind. No, I love that. I love that. Uh, it reminded me of uh, that guy, Mark Fisher, uh, who wrote a lot about music and technology and uh, the slow cancellation of the future. And, and there's this other critic or um, intellectual Simon Reynolds who talked about hauntology, you know, like art that kind of like deliberately, it's like set in a past that isn't the past, you know, it's not like period piece. It's like, the, it's like the present, but it feels like the past. Like there's this movie body heat, but this book gave me that similar feeling where it's like, we're, we're, we're in America. We know that. And it's um, but it's not important that we know who's president right now. Um, and I, I think that's, that's a cool place to work into rather than being like, you know, um, everything announcing what, what part of the Trump presidency we were in, <laughs> you know, like you see, or, or like the pandemic novels that are all coming out now. Uh, there's something yeah. about a being, just being in a, you know, some sort of late 20th century, early 21st century America. And we're, we're going to investigate kind of like the big myths. I like, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, I've always been just it's in every great book I've ever read. It's like, if it's not important to the character, I don't care if it's important to the reader. Right. You know, if Cody and Teal don't give a shit about Bill Clinton or George W. Bush being president, then the reader, what does it matter to the reader either? Right. Right. Yeah. 
Um, this might it and the thing you said about uh, Teal kind of like having the fantasy about Elvis being the uh, her father, and then Cody has his his rodeo cowboy as his uh, his dad that he's never met. Something about like um, attaching yourself to a lineage that has some like prestige or hope in it. That that struck me as like a very American fixation when things get tough. Yeah, I know. It's like, I feel so bad for these kids, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you start out, you write, you start writing about them for a while. And it's like, you know, the farther I get into the drafts of it, I just feel like worse and worse for them. I'm like, oh my God, these poor, and I'm happy when people tell me the book reads like a cartoon. I'm like, good. That's good. Because like, to me, it really like, really bums me out. Like all the you know, you spend so much time with them. You're like, oh man, the hard road these two have been on. I'm glad some people can read it and say, it's reminding me of Looney Tunes or something. I'm like, <laughs> awesome. Don't read it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah, don't do a second reading. It is Looney Tunes. That's cool. All right. Keep going. You know, go read another book. It's fine. <laughs> I like, I honestly like that. <laughs> One thing I had to ask you about is uh, it's a small spoiler here. So if you want to skip 30 seconds ahead, if someone's listening, who's like obsessed with not having anything spoiled, but Cody ends up in Montana and and is disillusioned when it doesn't live up to his fantasy. And part of that is uh, his cowboy asshole mentor there turns out to be a fraud cowboy. And he's actually from Pawtucket, the bucket, Rhode Island. uh, And he has Larry Bird jerseys in his closet. And I, I wondered how he ended up to be, from Pawtucket, uh, you know, just because I, I, I get just automatically excited anytime I see any Rhode Island town mentioned in any novel I'm reading. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, fr- I'm from the East Coast and the East Coast to me is, you know, it is it's it's Rhode Island is it might as well be New Jersey. It's the same place. Yeah. Much. yeah. And, I, and I love it there. And I love the I love the culture of the people in Rhode Island. I think it's, you know, when I've been to Providence, I'm like, I was like, oh man, I could almost, should I move up here? I'm not Do sure. It. You know, my wife went to art school there in Rissy. Oh, and, awesome. uh, so I would go up there sometimes. And um, I, I just really, I really like Rhode Island. I like, I like driving on, uh, on I-95, how there's like, what's the, the Thurber's curve or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And the big, the big curve. And then you see the, uh, the, the skyline appears and you got the big blue bug and the Providence yeah. and the river on your right. It's very scenic. It's, I love that sweep. And you got yeah. all the strip clubs on the waterfront to the right there too. It's got a lot going on that view, that big curve. Yeah. And I, I like it up there. I, I like, I like that. It's not quite new England yet. It's still like, it could be, could be like New Jersey junior. And I don't, I don't only say that because New Jersey is already junior. I don't, <laughs> yeah, it's little, yeah, yeah. these are two little places. I kind of feel like akin to like weird States in America like that, West Virginia. I love my trips to West Virginia. Not that I've extensively traveled there, but I just, I don't know. It's just, I like something about these underdog States. Yeah. You know? yeah. No, you- Missis- Mississippi. When I've been down to Mississippi, I've just been like, I like something about Mississippi. It's like such a strange messed up place just like jersey and every state is messed up but anyway so like why does this guy wind up living in Rhode island well honestly probably it's probably the worst state to be from if you were going to be like a macho cowboy guy (laughs) you know i mean maybe arguably connecticut (laughs) i'm not sure connecticut you're softer you know like that might be a little like i think the reality of it is is like whenever you get 
45 minutes away from a metropolitan area, all of a sudden you're in the country. That's true. You know, so, and people forget that, you yeah. know, they just, they, they say that about New Jersey. They're like, and when I was a kid, I used to like really laugh at the, the people who thought they were country who were from my area. They're pineys. They were, um, mm-hmm. they were just people who loved, you know, fishing and mudding and listening to country music, driving their four wheels out in the woods. And I was like, how can you be that way this close to New York City? When I was a kid, you know, I understand it as soon as like, as soon as you get a little older, it's just like, oh man, so if you're like just 45 minutes away, an hour away from like big metropolitan area, all of a sudden you're in America, you're in like actual America where like real, I'm not saying real people versus no, like, you know, not real if you live in the city, but I'm just saying like, you know, you yeah, disappear on, you disappear on the weekends into nature sometimes. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, so the guys from Rhode Island, because number one, it's funny. Number two, it's, it's just like, there used to be this commercial on TV when I was a kid, it was for like a certain salsa, I think it was paste salsa. It was like cowboys sitting around and they're like, like, where's the salsa from? And the guy's like from New York city, the guy's like New York city. It's like, you couldn't have salsa from New York city, but you can't have like a real cowboy from Paul Tucker, Rhode Island. It's yeah. like that same thing. I like that. I like that. You know, the guy being from Queens is too on the nose, let's say. Right, right, right. Pawtucket's like the same idea, but a little bit obscure. And the Larry Bird, uh, secret Larry Bird jersey is a great touch too. I love that. Yeah, he's got two of them. Yeah. <laughs> one for laundry day, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, all right, I can, I can excuse you having one Larry Bird jersey. Two. Two. You got two of them and you got what are his books his books are chicken soup for the cowboy soul yeah 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 he's got dianetics and he has tony robbins he has a tony robbins self-help book yeah yeah we all, when you we, find, yeah when you find that in your mentor's sock drawer yeah that's when you got to have a little moment of self-reflection what's really what are my real values here from getting derivative tony robbins in my life but, you know, the thing is to like about that scene of like getting, you know, it's like the authenticity doesn't really matter as much as, you know, I think when you're young, it matters, you know, right. when you're young, it's like, oh, he's, uh, who was I, who was I to, to worship this person? They're not, they're not authentic. They're not pure enough. It's that purity test. Mm. But I think like um, other thing that's going on in that, in that part is like the kid who's going through the um, he's going through the hazing, you know, he doesn't survive it. You know, I mean, he's been abused so much like leading up to this, that like, of course he wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to, he wouldn't be able to process it, but there's like this thing that happens when you enter into the workforce, this toxic thing, you know, where like the other men kind of, you know, they make, they make a j- joke of you in the beginning and they put you through the, the ringer and so cody get cody has to deal with all that and he doesn't handle it very well um but that was kind of something i wanted to look at and see you know what's it like when you find out that the person hazing you and and who you're like oh i'm not good enough for this person and you find out that they're they're literally just a clown yeah does it but unfortunately as you as you grow older and like you start to become those people at, at a job site even if you're not a, like a vicious piece of shit, you know, you find out that most everybody is kind of a clown and there's no such, there's no such thing as authentic people. People play 
a character at work a lot of times. Truly. And so you kind of just start to like, it just becomes this other sideshow that happens in your life in the workplace is people have these like fantasy personas that they just, they put on, on top of a fantasy persona for their profession. Yeah. You got, you got the, the one hat for work, the one hat for the family, the one hat for your spouse, you know, like the, you, know, you can't escape performance, you know, it doesn't mean there are no authentic moments, but there's always a little performance involved. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, my last question for you is just because we were talking about work. Um, you know, you work heavy construction and I, I'm just kind of curious about how you balance your writing life with it. Like, you know, what your writing routine is like if, if, if uh, you know, you're, you're working on the way in, you said you wrote on your phone a lot um, or if you're, it, it's hard to imagine after a day of heavy construction, you, you can sit down and, um, you know, pound away at the keyboard, but maybe you do. Yeah, I do. I do. I come home and I, I try to do some, some more. I try to do just the whole time. I'm never really doing my best work ever. Mm. It seems <laughs> until it's like, you know, draft 10 of the thing where I'm finally, all right, I'm going to start doing my, I'm going to start doing good work now, you know? Yeah. But yeah. So like, yeah, I mean, I do that job, but it's like, um, it's just like any other job you have your breaks. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, not everybody has breaks, but the, there's some breaks. There's coffee break, there's lunch break. And at the end of the day, you know, there's a little bit of time when everybody fights their way out of the parking lot. So, I, yeah, I just, I sit and I, I mess around a little bit with something creative. And uh, yeah, just a tiny, tiny bit of that adds up over time. But um, I found that, uh, you know, I'm getting older and I come, I have to come home now and like take a little nappy nap and then, uh, <laughs> And then I can get up and uh, have a fresh brain again to like maybe retype something on my typewriter or something. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's one of those things. Everybody kind of does some version of this. Yeah. This is, just, you know, we talk about like people's writing processes. It's like nobody like goes out in the wilderness and like, like burns a ram's head. And then like some kind of like manuscript descends from like a, you know a silver line cloud yeah yeah everybody yeah, yeah. just sits down and kind of like pecks away at something but i get asked this question all the time it's like and I, people ask me they're like how do i right, so how do i get a job in like heavy construction so i can do like it's almost like they're gonna manly stuff <laughs> it's not even manly it's just like the job itself it's not like it's manly it's just conditions are like hot and you work out in the rain and you work out in the freezing cold and it's just like it just sucks i mean uh, but i just figured every job sucks so whatever yeah this was one that uh you know i was like oh, i can go to school for free a little bit and i learned how to weld and stuff for it and i thought i have no interest in reading blueprints and things like that so i was like yeah maybe maybe if i start reading blueprints it'll be good because that seems like work something you don't want to do and the thing I really wanted to do was uh, to write novels and things, which I figured it would be nice to do the opposite of what I was naturally inclined to do. So I could separate the two things in my mind, you know, yeah. like, I don't know about you, but when I see like a, when I look at a blueprint, I don't think to myself, wow, I'm, I'm going to do such a good job 
designing, you know, not building this. Yeah. You build the thing, but you're not like, I did this, you know, it's just like somebody, you know, you have this thing you have to build and it's like, it can only come together one way. Right. So now when I sit down, I do my creative work, it's the opposite. Yeah. It's like unlimited opportunities. I can do whatever. It doesn't have to make sense. It can go, it can be sloppy and it could be crooked. And there's something nice about, I think about balancing your life in ways like that. For sure. For sure. You're not using your juice at work. You save that juice. Yeah. In a different juice. Yeah. I'm yeah. solving problems all day and doing a lot of different kinds of calculations, which are not um, poetic calculations. Right. I'm not, not poetically choosing rigging or poetically setting up the crane. Love, love that. Love that. Well, thank you for taking the time, Bud. That was a lot of fun. Today's guest was Bud Smith, and we were discussing his novel, Teenager. You can order a copy at skylightbooks.com or swing by the store and pick it up in person. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again, Bud. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.